everyone, and welcome to episode 36 of Her Story. This is your host, Cassidy Reed, and today I have guest Annie Nikunin. Annie is a composer, flutist, choreographer, dancer, sound artist, and broadcaster based in New York City. In this episode, Annie and I discuss her life and career, the close relationship between music and dance, intertwining art forms, and equity in music. Please like and share this episode with your friends, and I will see you next Monday. everyone. Uh, my name is Annie Nikunin, and I am a New York City-based composer, flutist, dancer, choreographer, sound artist, and radio broadcaster. And I'm initially from Northport, New York, on Long Island. Woohoo! Fellow New Yorker. <laughs> I'm just on the other side. Buffalo. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So I just wanted to start a little bit with your background and some of your early experiences as a student. So what got you started in music in the first place? So this is a great story. So I started, I I was very fortunate to grow up in a school district that really valued the arts in in all senses of that. They, I, I think they were just so crucial to my path in music and I forever owe that to them, the, the Northport school district music department and so they had a summer music program that began when you everyone was in like third grade or so and so you'd pick an instrument and uh initially it's funny because i i'll get into this more later in the interview but i i started ballet first but then i you know i wanted to do music and a lot of people did it in the school because it was such a big deal in the district and they put so much emphasis on it and which was kind of unique for a, a public school district and um so i initially wanted to play the cello because my older brother played the cello and I was in a phase where I was like, I want to do everything he does. So then my mom said to me, you're way too small to carry that around. (laughs) I was like a really tiny little fourth grader. And she's like, yeah, no, you're not, you can't lug that around school. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) so maybe, and I took a look at the other instruments and I'm like, well, the flute's portable. So let's give that a whirl. And so I remember you had to write down at least like your three top choices. So I think I did flute, cello and like French horn or something. <laughs> so okay, I always cool. have like an existential crisis whenever I think about like if I was a, if I had played cello or a French horn or something, but it just so happened that actually most people who put down flute didn't necessarily get it because it was for some reason, you know, in when you first start out in elementary schools, like that seems to be the most popular instrument that people pick. Yeah. And so I happened to get it and at first they give you a rental and um, you get you get into this whole summer music program that they have where for July and August you take lessons and you do like a little mini chamber series with the other people in your instrument group and it's it's a really high level program and and even looking back on it now I'm just I'm so impressed with it and I went back to teach in it um, a few years ago and it's um 
yeah, it was just such a great school district to to grow up in, in terms of how, how much they cared about the arts. And so after summer music, um, I continued to play in elementary school in the bands. And again, they had like a choir, a, you know, an orchestra, a concert band. And as the, as I progressed through the schools that only got more, um, I guess, intense because then in middle school, they had a pit orchestra and I actually played with my, I was invited to play with my teachers in a pit orchestra. That was really fun. And I, I ended up being in the, you know, the symphony orchestra and the jazz band. There were just so many different things to be in. And so many of my mornings before school, I'd go to choir practice at like 7am or band practice. And then at, in high school, that's when it really geared up and they, had everything from I mean it was almost like my everyone referred to it that in my high school it was almost like a mini conservatory program um, and they actually call it the the Northport music conservatory program and so I took composition and theory with my beloved mentor to this day Frank Doyle and uh, I did tour choir uh, we toured in England and Scotland for a summer wow. um, then I was in four pit orchestras for four plays, the symphony orchestra, the symphonic winds, which was an honors band. There was just everything you could think of. And uh, marching band, of course, I can't forget that. I was a drum major <laughs> in marching band. It's a very important part of my identity. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, so that, I, I really owe it all to the Northport Music Department. Um, they just instilled within me. I, I strongly believe that the teachers you have are just make all the difference in terms of how you view music and what you can do in that. And, you know, I, I've talked to certain people where they say, you know, certain people discourage them and they said, you know, I can't, you can't do that or you can't do this. And so they, at a very young, impressionable age, they were discouraged and so they quit. But mm -hmm. I'm very thankful that I was surrounded by a group of teachers that I'm still to this day so close with. It's like a, a second family for me. And I, you know, they still are with me throughout the ride of life. And, um, you know, they've known me since I was like five. And uh, it's incredible to think about that they, they were so, such a positive reinforcement and they just really inspired me. And a lot of people actually from my district go into music education for that very reason, because of yeah. how inspiring that particular group of teachers was and is. And a lot of them retired now, but even the district continues to hire that, that same kind of person. And now I'm actually in the, the what's called the Northport Community Band, which is a little uh, band that performs every summer uh, in a band shell in Northport in my hometown, which is a tiny little harbor town on Long Island. It's so beautiful. And so we play in the park and it's, it's one of those things that's just so fun to reconnect with them. And so... I, uh, yeah, I still maintain my relationships with them to this day. And I'm so thankful for that. That's so great. And you brought up the excellent point of a lot of us who are in, you know, the stereotypical instruments that would be in, you know, a large orchestra or a large wind ensemble. We owe a lot of where we are today to the teachers that we had in public school. The vast majority of us, uh, at least for me, I, you know, I didn't start studying privately until I was in high school. So all of that foundational build from elementary through middle school was all credit 100% to the teachers that I had. 
Um, and I have a very similar background to you as well. I was in all these ensembles and things, and we still have a community band too in the town that I grew up in. Yeah. And we do like the whole outdoor concert in the shell and everything. So, <laughs> so we're, we're very similar in that. I actually love that idea of starting those third graders who are just, you know, getting out of third grade early in that summer program. I think that's amazing um, that your school district does that as well. We were actually a colleague of mine in my school district, we were actually talking about potentially starting a program similar to that to just get the kids, you know, jumpstart into band or orchestra or whatever early. I think that's really awesome that your school district did that. Yeah, that, that was a really efficient way of doing it. Looking back, they, they mm -hmm. really, and ever since that, I mean, it's only grown. And when I went back to, when they asked me to teach in it, I it's only sharpened and it's so it's 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 a great plan because then you know they kind of have an advanced period where during the summer you know when their school isn't in session they can really focus on the instrument itself and that you know those first couple months are pretty important you know yeah. of course in terms of especially with flute you know I remember a lot of people like you, you have trouble like getting the sound out and mm. it can be frustrating and and so you know you kind of really can just devote all of your mental energy towards that and then when school starts also there's a little other thing built in where it's like you already have this community of people that you knew over the summer and it's like oh like wow we you know we were in band together or something and yeah it's it's a great yeah really really great thing that they that's do. awesome yeah and you were talking a lot about your life growing up as a musician so can you touch a little bit about your life growing up as a dancer as well because you had mentioned that you had started your you know your career in music essentially started in ballet when you were like four so what has that been like growing up as a dancer in connection to growing up as also a classical musician yeah, so it's funny that at first they were quite distinct separate paths, but then they ended up melding together towards the end, or, or at least the, you know, I guess it's the beginning <laughs> of it all. But when, so yeah, I started dancing when, before music, um, when I was about four, and I attended this school, uh, Posey School of Dance, which I now teach at, actually, uh, which is a That's real awesome. full circle feeling. <laughs> and uh, so I basically, Posey was such a significant part of my childhood. And it's right down the hill from my, uh, my parents' house. And um, I, you know, we'd walk down and it was just, it was such a memorable thing. And I, so I started dancing. And of course, you know, like every you know, my mom put me in a few different things. And I think I tried out like soccer and uh, these other things and I hated it. And <laughs> I didn't really like any other sports. And, um, and I remember my, my mom said to me that when she took me to ballet, I was like, I like this, I'm going to continue this. So I, that's what ended up happening. And I, I basically went through the ranks, so to speak, at the school. Um, it was it was quite unique because my my teacher there, uh, Elsa Posey, who's actually still there, sort of uh, behind the scenes, but she kind of managed the school like an old-fashioned ballet company, or like a you know almost like a professional ballet company. And so, you know, usually these schools, it's like you all move up together in a certain level or like it's, it's kind of more of a, um, I don't want to say factory thing, but somewhat that. And she, it, it was very old fashioned in the sense that she individually appointed you to go to each class. She individually appointed you to go to point. It, it was like a very 
very interesting thing. And so it's, and it's a beautiful studio. It's like one of these old, almost like Upper West Side 70s studios or something. And so uh, I spent my whole childhood there and it, it got to the point where I actually wanted to pursue ballet professionally. So that was my first uh, career track really. And I, you know, I was doing it really hardcore. And um, eventually I actually even went to another ballet school for a year um, in the town over. And that was where I, I really amped it up. I was dancing about six, seven days a week. It was, it was a lot. And so then I went to, I got into the uh, Joffrey Ballet Summer Intensive. And that was really the turning point um, when I was about 13 or 14, 13. Um, and so that's where really you have to make a decision with that. And so many ballet dancers, you know, you kind of adult early, so to speak, because you're forced to make these really mature decisions at a, at a very young age. Um, yeah. And it's kind of like determining the rest of your life, really. And so I had to really think about a lot. And I, I went to Joffrey and it was transformative for a lot of different reasons. Um, I mean, I loved it. It was, it was such a, a really unforgettable experience. But I ultimately chose that I wasn't going to pursue ballet in that kind of traditional professional sense for, I mean, the multitude of reasons included that I you know, my body was, I, when I was 13, I felt like I had the body of like an 80 year old. Um, I, you know, I had like, my knees were hurting me, my back, my yeah. feet were awful. It was, yeah. And I, I remember going to the doctor and my doctor was like, yeah, maybe you should take it easy um, from this. And I really thought about, you know, that because my body felt really bad. Um, and so I, and also just the career, you know, your career is typically shorter um, as a, professional ballet dancer you know people retire on average in their 30s I mean late maybe now late 30s because people are training more you know it, so I kind of had to weigh out a lot of different factors and also I wanted to go to college and um and music was the the thing that also I was you know at some point you kind of just have to make the choice when you're doing both things at such an intense level that one kind of has to give and so at that point in my life I thought okay you know I'm gonna pursue music and academics, you know, um, but then I vowed to incorporate dance into my career in, in my own way, basically. And so I, yeah. I took a hiatus from it for about, I, I want to say maybe like three or four years. And it was actually a very painful period. I kind of, I, I couldn't even see ballet, like I could barely even go, um, because it was, it was almost too painful. And I had to really mentally separate for a time. And then in college, I started getting back into it because the dance department at Barnard was just stellar. Um, they, they have so many amazing opportunities and people there. And so I, I, you know, ballet is my roots. So of course, that's what I naturally instinctively go to. But I ended up exploring all these other styles like modern and contact improvisation. And of course, in, in the New York City, there's, there's so many dance scenes that I hadn't known of before. So I thought, wow, I'm going to explore this. And, you know, ballet, I can kind of amalgamate with these other styles. And so that's kind of what ended up happening, where I, I sort of regained the desire to kind of get physically back into it. And, you know, then I got into choreographing in college. So it, it sort of turned into this thing where it ended up overlapping with my 
with my sound work and you know composing and choreographing and essentially the the four dimensions of my artistic practice are, are fluting composing uh dancing and choreographing and each kind of overlaps and seeps into the other and um yeah. i often you know even compositionally i think in choreography i, I often base my composition on movement of some kind and then vice versa um you know when i'm choreographing i think in sound and how you know a sound would be translated in the body or something like that so i view those two mediums as just so permeable within each other and i think that's that's really the core of my of my practice and my career now yeah it's awesome i love how you're able to just intertwine you know both things that you're so passionate about and you had mentioned that you also are a composer so you decided to pursue your bachelor's in theory and composition so can you talk a little bit about what made you make that decision and what your collegiate experiences were like in that program yeah absolutely so i i was fortunate in in undergrad i really landed a great situation in terms of you know dance wise composition wise flute wise i ended up really just having a really I sharpened each discipline in really unique ways at Barnard and at Columbia University as a whole. So I, I pursued theory and composition because at first, you know, at, at Columbia, it works in this way where you get, you know, if you major in music, the BA in music is kind of how you personally sculpt it for yourself and you kind of create your own concentration in a way. So I pursued flute performance by doing a dual program with Manhattan School of Music. And then uh, my BA in music at Barnard in Columbia was uh, in composition and theory. And so Columbia's composition program is unbelievably stellar. And I actually didn't really know this going in and I had composed in high school. Um, but I at the time like really flute was more my my priority at the beginning of college but then as i explored the the music department at columbia and all the different unbelievably in, like intellectually stimulating classes that they offered that were compositionally based and theory based i was like this is amazing i have to you know i have to do more of this and so i i ended up really aligning with the the composition and theory circles there and the faculty brilliant faculty beyond brilliant um and they are so inspiring still my mentors uh to this day and so when i took the the composition classes there um i really i it just opened my mind to the the composition style there is is really it's you know it's new music centered and in high school i that wasn't really what I was taught in. I actually was more taught in a sort of, um, I wanna say like a film scoring kind of classically rooted style. That's kind of how I yeah. think of it. But with new music, I kind of was just thrown and submerged in this new environment and I happened to fall in love with it. And I thought these, these new sounds that were just, like these ways to make music that were not necessarily what you'd think and if you were you know i was exposed to some levels of new music in high school but i didn't really um you know i i didn't know the half of it at that point so when i was just submerged in this environment i i, I was so fascinated by it and 
the you know the, the even the composers in the um, the DMA program at Columbia. I I became friends with a lot of them and they are so such brilliant people with all very different things going on that are so fascinating and um and i it inspired me to really kind of delve into composition and so and the and the classes there are great because they hire a a really like a new york music ensemble to play your music at the end of the semester so you know i had my pieces performed by phonema concert and international contemporary ensemble and ensembles like that that are really you know top notch and so you get to work with these people um and experience what it's like to work with an ensemble and that's so important in composition that it's it's really even though it's considered to be somewhat of a i guess quote unquote lonely profession in some ways because you know you're you're in a room and you're creating this stuff in your mind um, there's also that really significant collaborative element of it where you're with a group and you're transferring your ideas to them and conveying, you know, they're the window through which you basically tell your story. And so the, I really learned a lot about how to communicate my ideas to instrumentalists and to musicians and um, even dancers, you know, and how to get my ideas across in the most explicit way possible. And I, I was really fulfilled by that. I'd say that was a turning point for me when I took one of the composition courses um, my junior year. And I, working with the ensemble, Phonema Consort, um, I, I'll never forget that feeling where I was sitting in the audience with my score in my lap and it was a dress rehearsal. And I thought to myself like, wow, I, you know, working with these people and, having this thing that I created and I spend so much time on and the fact that it's the, it's the product of your mind, you know, it's the, I love, of course, I love flute performance, but I, I was having some conflicts at the time about that being, you know, like where, when you perform, it's kind of about what you do in those five minutes on stage, you know, rather than in composition, I viewed it that it's like, well, you know, I did, I created this thing and then, I, I give it to an ensemble and we kind of tell the story together and it's it's a, such a collaborative process and so that that really just inspired me and made me want composition to be a more prevalent element of my career and and theory as well theory kind of melded the theory and composition departments are kind of closely interconnected at Columbia and the the people in the theory department ended up becoming my mentors as well and they, I took classes like cognitive musicality and, um, you know, atonal theory and things that were just so mind-blowing that uh, really influenced a lot of the inspirations behind my compositions too, because I'm very fascinated by music in the mind um, and, you know, things like the, the emotions that you know, how to convey that emotion through sound. And that's why I love film scoring as well. And, and scoring for dance is similar where you're kind of going off of the subtleties of people and, you know, the emotions that are, you know, present in the room and trying to basically tell that story through sound. Um, so that, that really pursuing composition and theory at Columbia just ended up exposing me to all these different inspirations that that ended up kind of becoming part of my career and part of my process today. My next question for you is 
how have you in your professional life now, how have you incorporated your love of dance and classical music together? I mean, I know obviously because I read your bio, but everybody else doesn't <laughs> know. So how have you incorporated both of those things in your professional life? Because you are my first guest that is also a dancer and a choreographer. Ah, okay. Yeah. So I, I'd say I meld them in, in different ways. So I think in my mind, I just naturally think of them as one and the same. And I think that's something that um, here in America, it's actually not really viewed that way. And I, I find that it almost boggles my mind, but uh, like dance and music are viewed as very separate uh, artistic practices, whereas in other places yeah. in the world, that's not the case. And other other places, it's like they're literally the same thing. They're like one one and the same. You learn how to dance and play music at the same time, and that's kind of like an intertwined thing. So I I would always kind of be confounded by that, where I'm like, why are these things so separate? Why you know why is it that they can't be amalgamated in in that way? And so I really I, I took my knowledge in sound and, and music and composition performing. And then um, I took my knowledge in dance from the intense ballet training I got and just, you know, choreographing and that sort of terminology and art. And I decided that I was gonna basically, I, I wanted to do it all. <laughs> and I wanted to have these four sides of my practice that fed into each other. and you know, and, and this manifests in, in such different ways where, for example, I recently worked on a piece, a multimedia work where um, I, I'm very interested in motion capture. And I, I did a lot of work at the Columbia Computer Music Center, which is a really um, renowned institution. And I, uh, I, I really got into the idea of movement being the sound source as opposed to, you know, having like usually when a composer and choreographer collaborate it's like okay here's this dance and you know you make or here's this piece of music rather and then the dancers the choreographer kind of makes a piece based on it but I'm interested in the movement coming first and then the sound coming after that and so based on that idea I kind of created all of these projects from that and, you know, one of them is this multimedia work called um, Requiem for Anchorage, Partner in Passing Time. And it's a part of this series I created at the start of COVID called Pade de Sans Un, which means dance for two without one. And it basically highlighted that we are, or, you know, we're deprived of moving and dancing or partnering other humans in the time of COVID and the lockdown, especially at the at the peak of it, you know, in, in April yeah. and May and June. And I, I was, because I thought to myself at that time, I'm like, okay, well, I can't dance with people. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of just like in a room. And I had, I was, I was looking what I had around me in my apartment. And I, I thought to myself, well, I can partner inanimate things. And so basically the point of this choreographic compositional series, as I refer to it, is that I partner inanimate and intangible things. So at first, you know, I partnered a wall, I partnered the floor, <laughs> um, I partnered a chair. So it's almost like these, I, I was exploring the energy, the different channels of energy that can be explored in an object where, you know, usually mm -hmm. when you're moving with a person, it's like, you know, there's obviously an, an obvious active 
channel of communication that's going on and a give and take and a push and pull. Whereas with an object, it's a little bit less straightforward. So you have to, you know, I was kind of looking at these things around me and I'm like, well, how can I create something where I move with it or around it or, you know, and I, and I thought that's kind of how I, you know, I, I often get out my emotions and things through moving. And so that's sort of, mm -hmm. I, I played around a lot with those ideas and then they became pieces. And then the intangible element came with this multimedia work where it's um, basically partnering passing time is what I chose to do. And I thought about if time were a substance, like a material to move with and interact with, interface with, and what that would mean, what that would look like, and what that would look like in sound. So basically I, I composed a piece set to it and then I, I did a video of me dancing and there's some video editing that manipulated it where I have trailing versions of me, like negatives that sort of follow me as I dance. And so it's sort of like how my body interacts with past versions of myself. That's so cool. And thank you. Yeah, it was really fun to, uh, to explore and to create. And I think I, I took a lot of what I was feeling during during COVID and um you know just a lot of personal experience and I channeled it into this and um the series ended up expanding and that kind of became the core of where how I intersected the the composition and the choreography directly because for a while I was sort of thinking about how I could really connect the two beyond just kind of in my head how I work and how I process things and so that um, I like where it's, it's I, I sort of have the same voice where it's like I have my choreographic voice and my compositional voice interacting with each other. Whereas in usual choreographic compositional collaborations, there, there are two voices going on. So it's, it's mm -hmm. an interesting thing to kind of have those two sides of myself that are, you know, connecting or are maybe somewhat separate at times and exploring that. Through, through that work. That's so cool. And you had brought up a good point um, at the beginning of answering my question. You were talking about how our culture has separated dance and music so much from each other, whereas other cultures, it is so integrated. I think that's so true. If you look at pretty much every other non-Western culture, dance and music are one. There's, they're not separate entities. Um, and I thought that point is just so fascinating. And obviously we're aware of those things, but it's things that you just don't think about right away consciously that I'm sure you think about all the time. But for for me, not a dance person, <laughs> that was so, it's so true, right? It's so true. And I love that you're able to incorporate both of these things together. And in fact, you had mentioned that you, you talk about how performance, composing, dancing, and being a choreographer are both are four sides of the same square. You put that in your bio, and you also mentioned that earlier. And that kind of relates to your research um, as a professional. So can you talk, I know you touched on your research just a little bit, but can you talk more about your research interests and what those entail? Absolutely. So I'd say my my time at Columbia definitely, you know, being in an academic environment of that kind of, um, you know, intellectual stimulation, I'd say the, the topics that arose during those four years definitely sparked certain research interests of mine and really got me thinking about what I'm composing about and why I'm writing about it and, and that sort of thing. 
And so basically I, I'd say the, you know, at the core of my work, I obviously the, you know, sound body connections, I, I love to research and analyze and composer choreographer relationships, which is the basically what I wrote my thesis about in college and also embodied cognition and and basically sounds relationships with gesture language and text emotion and and especially memory and I'd say I I'm one of those composers where I really base a lot of what I write on about my personal experiences and what I'm dealing with in life at that point um, or what I've dealt with in the past. And one of my uh, former professors at Columbia phrased it brilliantly where he, he once said that he viewed his compositions as versions of himself. It's like when you go back to certain compositions that you wrote in life, it's like revisiting a past version of yourself. And I mm -hmm. thought that was so fascinating. And I thought about that relentlessly after he said that, and it's it's so true. And so I think I view that with with my work, I view it as almost like where I was, it, it takes me back to where I was at that time in my life. And I'd say it's a blessing and a curse um, channeling your own personal experiences and emotions as the core of your work, because sometimes I reach a conflict where I, I can't channel those emotions if they're too raw or on a certain day, it's triggering me more than others or something like that. And I think I am very fascinated by through movement and sound capturing the, the dynamics of human relationships in a, in a general sense, but in a more specific sense, the the subtleties of intimacy between people and um you know i've worked a lot in you know when i've partnered people in dance like in pas de deux and in you know like partnering is a really interesting thing and it's very similar when you're working with musicians in an ensemble that that kind of communication you're really just so in it together and it's a constant push and pull give and take and you're just feeling each other out and that's part of why i love contact improvisation where you're partnering somebody and you're just kind of literally improvising and seeing where you both go with each other um, and I think that's that's something that really inspires my work. Um, and I, I write open scores a lot for that reason, or I give the performers rather a lot of liberties. I usually have very specific sounds and ideas that I bring to them, but I allow them to kind of really play with it in their own way so their personality comes through. Um, but I, I definitely think that the thinking about just human relationships and the I, I always view it as almost like the the lineage of people you meet throughout life is like a dna thread it's it's something that is totally a hundred percent unique to each person and cannot be replicated so it's you know and i think about that so much where you just have this you know certain people in your life are more significant than others for some reason and you know mm -hmm. you people come in and out of your life and i think with covid this has been very much highlighted for all of us, you know, in more ways than one. And so, you know, that that cycle of people coming in and out of your life or seeing, you know, the people that stay in your life or the, you know, just the, the people that have impacted you and that, um, I always think of it like that, that DNA thread, uh, that lineage of people that only you have and that impacted you in all these very particular ways that may be subconscious or, or you know, conscious or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that I really 
I examine that whenever I, I compose, I think about that. And um, I like to draw in general from, the, there's this thing, I, I use this, this resource quite a bit when composing called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And it's, <laughs> the name is great, but it's, it's this basically a dictionary of the, these words where you can't, it's like a feeling that can't really be captured in a single English word. Um, in the English language. So it's it's kind of like a, you know, it could be a feeling where like once I actually wrote a piece on a specific feeling in that dictionary without knowing there was a word for it. <laughs> and that's what kind of spurred me to to use this as an inspiration. But, you know, one, one of the words I used was that, you know, there's this feeling where, you know, if a tragedy hits in your life, something, you know, really hits you hard and you're feeling it and it's like your stomach drops, but the rest of the world just keeps on going. It's like that impenetrable energy that seems to just, you know, the, the world keeps going at its fixed speed and you are, you know, you kind of have to deal with whatever you're dealing with within that. And no matter what, how empathetic people can be, it's like only you really know what you're feeling and all the the subtleties of that feeling. So I wrote a piece based on that. And I think I, a goal I have in my composing and choreographing is that I, I like to have these rather general human experiences, like common human experiences that can be very personal, personally relatable. So like, if that makes sense, kind of like you, for example, you know, we all have dealt with tragedy in, in one way or another, especially in the face of COVID. And I think, you know, but we all have very unique and, uh, you know, specific experiences within that common human experience. So I, I like to sort of have it be relatable in that sense, but then it channels a very personal element that only you know. And so I think that's, um, that's something that just constantly moves me in, in sound and movement. And I relentlessly try to explore how to communicate that. Yeah, that's all just so fascinating. I love all of it. So great. And it's, it's so applicable to everything that's going on in the world now as well. You know, that lack of feeling of human connection and human touch and human interaction and those things. So absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> think about it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully not for too much longer, fingers crossed. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> hopefully. Uh, you are also the founder of a New York City-based new music group called Black Box Ensemble, which I read was recently featured in The New Yorker. Um, so can you talk a little bit about this new music group, um, why you found the group, and what its mission is? What do you do? Yeah, absolutely. So, so yes, so I'm a, I'm a founding member of this group, Black Box Ensemble, and it was founded by my dear friend and um, someone I work so closely with, Leonard Bopp, and he, he's the artistic director. And basically about, I want to say it was August 2018, so a little bit over two years ago, the group formed. And it's funny, I actually just interviewed him about our whole origins because we just had a virtual concert um the other night but uh so it's all fresh in my head <laughs> uh, we so basically we formed in in august 2018 and i'll never forget getting the email from him that was almost that's like a very vivid memory in my head and 
I remember thinking it was, it was, I had a gut feeling it was going to be different than other things I've done because I remember he had everything laid out and planned and organized. And he's basically like, I found you through the ether. Um, and do you want to be part of this project? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And so it was almost one of these things. Um, it was a very DIY thing. The first concert, um, we basically, got together um or he got together a bunch of people that he knew you know as you know in the music world especially the new york music world but is very very small so we all kind of somewhat know each other and people in in our spheres and uh so he he had all these people um lined up for this and he planned a, an amazing program that was quite ambitious um, with a piece by George Lewis, who is actually someone I, uh, one of my mentors at Columbia, and then um, one by Paul Novak, who's, who's a friend, uh, who is a fabulous composer. And so we had this first concert in Brooklyn, and basically we rehearsed together and a couple days before. And I, I remember specifically thinking it was a really it was a special group of people and um, we we all just clicked right away. And there was an element um, in the interview with Leonard the other day, we were talking about the element of trust that was just there instantly. And that it was, it, it felt kind of, um, I don't know, like you never, you kind of never know what to think when you're walking into a new ensemble. It's like, you know, anything can happen and you don't know what the people are going to be like or you know just there there are so many different uh, unpredictables but um this ended up being just it was such a success the first concert and i think as leonard said people had an appetite for more of that and um and so we did another project and it ended up being that we just kind of kept you know sharpening our personnel and sharpening other elements where it turned into like kind of a trial project into an ensemble. And um, we ended up forging these relationships with uh, wonderful composers and having these really exciting programs. And I think that our, our mission, you know, has kind of, it's, it's sharpened over, over the years. Um, but basically we, you know, we're a contemporary music group um, in the city and we produce projects that explore social and, and cultural and political issues and in a way that's really unique. I think I, I really admire Leonard's um, curatorial skills and programming and I think that you know we, we formed an executive team where I'm the not only am I the flutist but I'm the, the social media and marketing manager as well so I've, I've gotten to kind of be on the executive side of the ensemble and mm -hmm. um, you know just seeing how how much work goes into you know put how much work goes into putting on these programs and you know the we really valued um highlighting the voices of these insanely amazing composers um that had this this work that you know it just blew our minds and so we'd come across these people and we'd be like you do you know do you want to be on our concert and they're, they're like yeah and so we we really had a lot of collaborative um amazing collaborative experiences with these people and we're very you know open to 
different kinds of concert experiences as well. Like with COVID, you know, um, we had to get creative, like all these ensembles uh, that are navigating their way through this, this difficult time without live performance. And so we had an outdoor performance where we performed Julius Eastman um, in East River State Park. That was really lovely. And I think people are really just, uh, you know, starving for that in-person music experience of having other people around you, um, even if socially distanced and, uh, you know, hearing the, the sounds in the room, hearing the vibrations. And um, so I think with COVID, we've really gotten the opportunity to actually sharpen our mission statement and sharpen our goals and what we want to produce. And, um, you know, we basically, we have a whole list of things we want to do over, over the next years. We're forming a lot of, uh, we're doing a lot of planning in this time for, because uh, we got some grants recently. But yeah, I think just so, so much of our work uh, highlights the, you know, creative experimentation and critical inquiry and, um, you know, political engagement and, you know, highlighting the, the inequities and the, you know, the, the, the problems that, that the music world and the world at large are facing today. And, presenting it in such a way where we, you know, we, we kind of address it in a general way and think about, you know, all the different parts of that problem. And, um, you know, I think that the people in the ensemble though are just, oh, there's such a joy to work with. I, I, feel, I feel so blessed to have a team like that, um, that we all really just love working with each other and we have a passion for, um, you know, really just, going all out with with this ensemble and uh and yes we got we got featured in the new yorker for one of our concerts and that was that was lovely that was a great surprise (laughs) and so we yeah we were uh, that was that was that was a good feeling and then we we had a uh our concert the other day um was a virtual concert that was many months in the making that was an elegy theme and it's similar to what I was referring to before. We kind of touch on these things, you know, the, the things happening in the world, obviously, but, um, you know, it's like that in a way that kind of everyone can relate to it. So this, this general elegy theme um, within it were these pieces that touched on loss, mourning, tragedy, those sorts of themes in different ways. And so, you know, there was uh, Jewy Bonsal's The Lost Country of Sight and Carlos Simon's Elegy, um, Jessica May's Elegy, uh, Yaz Lancaster's Intangible Landscapes and uh, Brittany J. Green's Maps, which was a multimedia work. And each one touched on those, those themes of tragedy and mourning and loss in really potent visceral ways. And I think the fact that even we were, we only rehearsed with each other in the same room for the first time, uh, it was about a month ago, um, since March. And it was a really emotional experience where we all, it kind of hit us at the same time that we were, you know, socially distanced in a, in a room, but, um, you know, to feel people around you and rehearsing in that way. And I, you know, who, who would have thought that we would ever, that that would be a luxury, you know, yeah. I think that's, that's really, it, it hit really hard <laughs> that, um, you know, that that's something now that to be really thankful for and something I know I'll, I'll never take for granted again. 
Oh yeah, one of my fellow band directors and I were talking about that and how, how much we took for granted just, you know, teaching our students and being able to have all of them in the same room at the same time. And we were talking about how much we're going to ball when we're able to have all of our kids in the same room again. We're going to play like some like scale as a warm up. We're just going to be sobbing. Exactly. <laughs> like, really like, That's basically what happened with us. We were like, yeah, <laughs> we exactly. one note. we're like, oh my gosh, this is like, this is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's it's so communal you know like the the music is just such a it's about those communal bonds that that you make and i think of all the musical experiences i've had you know over the years of, of varying uh you know levels it's i always think of the the people i shared it with and you know the the feeling in the room and the the different spaces i've been in and the literally the vibrations you feel from that it's like you yeah. you remember that that doesn't leave your body you know yeah you don't know it till you experience it either for sure and, and it has such a lasting impact on you 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 crave for it again when it gets taken from you absolutely yeah. yeah. So, so that was a really, definitely very potent getting to rehearse for the first time since March. Yeah, that's awesome. And you also, so you have this black box ensemble new music group that you started, but you also are a DJ as well. So mm -hmm. you work for WKCR and you have some weekly shows that you do. So can you talk a little bit about your job there and what you do? Yeah, so I so I started at WKCR about I want to say maybe four years ago, and I it was funny because I at first you know when I first got to college I I thought to myself you know I was performing I was composing and, and getting into dance again and you know I, I kind of had this um, this hunger for exploring all facets of the music industry like all sides of it i even got into conducting for a while um i i just was really wanting to experience everything and pack everything in and so i had a few friends who um who were in wkcr and they they said to me you know like it's it's a really cool place like you should check it out and i'm like yeah you know i should and so i i sat in on a on a basically a show that a friend had and i I thought to myself, like, I really want to do this. Like, and it's sometimes you get a feeling more than others where it's like, you just really want to do something. And so I was kind of relentless about it. And I, I, you have to actually intern there for a while. So I did like a fast track internship over the summer. And basically they teach you how to operate the board. It's a very do it yourself kind of station where you, uh, you operate all the technological aspects and, um, that's a big part of getting licensed, but also just even knowing the history of the station, that's another part of, of getting licensed. So then you take the exam and I did that and I passed. And um, then basically they say, okay, like you've got your own show and you can do whatever you want with it within the department's um, you know, genre, so to speak. And so there were nine, there's nine departments at WKCR, which it, it's just such a rich, musical environment in so many different ways and this really was a this was one of the most when i think back to college one of the most transformative experiences this is probably in like my top two um i, I can't imagine what my life would be without this station and without my having the experience i have had in radio um, so I got my own show on Friday afternoon, which is the show I have to this day. 
uh, and it's called Afternoon Classical. And um, it's in the classical department. And so as soon as I got licensed, um, the classical head at the station was on their way out. And they, I guess, noticed my enthusiasm. And they said, like, hey, do, do you want to be the classical head? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> Why not? And so I, uh, I kind of just went into being classical head as soon as I got licensed. And I, I was really kind of uh, thrown into the water, so to speak, because I then had to coordinate WKCR's 40th annual Bach Fest, which is like a huge event. It's like a citywide event where it's like a 10 days of Bach for 24-7, like literally you schedule a person for every hour of every day for 10 days. And wow. um, you have to, it's a huge undertaking and it was probably one of the most formative learning experiences I've ever had. But so I, you know, I, I coordinated this thing and you have to, you know, you get special guests like these really famous Bach interpreters or performers. So, you know, we had Hilary Hahn um, on at one point and it was, it's, it was incredible. And so, and it was so exciting. I mean, it, it's something WKCR, if, if anything, they're very rooted in tradition and it's, it's a, they're very proud of that. So I, I really got into that and so many people are just so passionate about it there. So I think that was very contagious and I, I fell in love with radio and I, I think I, I love public speaking. Like I, I'm someone who really loves presenting and sharing my ideas that way. And I had a platform all of a sudden to talk about basically whatever I wanted. And so I curated as classical head, I was kind of able to curate the inventory of the department, like expand it um, beyond what people think of as the typical classical, you know, capital C classical genre. Yeah. Um, I ended up kind of having, featuring more composers that were lesser known and, um, you know, these, this music that people wouldn't necessarily think of when they think of quote unquote classical, but um, it ended up being really just a, a great way to explore music. I mean, I, I, I can't think of a, I've just thought I've learned about so many different composers and, and genres of music through that station. And I've just gotten exposed to so much new music because I, I had to do research for it. And, um, and I took the position pretty seriously. So I, uh, I really wanted to beef up the department with as much, uh, as many kind of kaleidoscopic dimensions of classical music as there could be. And so after my term ended as classical head, then I became the business manager of the station. So I, I also got to see the executive side of radio as well. And so I managed the money um, and like fundraising. And we had a pretty, uh, we, I think there's some crazy statistic, like we have the the highest operational budget of any like radio station in college in the entire country or something. Like it, it's because WKCR is, very much even the, even though it's Columbia's radio station it's like considered to be a very much like a New York City radio station so um, it's almost like you have a full-time job along with being a student so um, I, I was in charge of fundraising and and operational spending and kind of um, you know taking care of our budget and also just having a hand in running the station and um, you know, kind of making these kinds of really big executive decisions and and influencing the station too, the direction of it and the, um, you know, so many people 
I think on my show, um, I, I ended up really getting into curating the, the material for my show and it ended up being a, a platform for me to share my love for ballet music mainly. Also like some orchestral and film and choral music, but mainly the music of New York City Ballet actually, because I'm, I'm like a total New York City Ballet junkie. I, <laughs> I'm obsessed with their, I, I think their, their music for the ballets of Balanchine um, are, are just, and Robbins and, and the different choreographers that have been there are just so striking and stuff that isn't necessarily played in the concert hall that much. Like, you know, we always hear, um, you know, Chike Pathétique or something, in, you know, that the New York folk plays, but we never really hear the, um, the, the Polish symphony, which is the music to diamonds um, in Balanchine's Jewels. And I think there are just all of these hidden gems in, in the ballet music of that company that is, I wanted to, I, I felt really passionate about spreading the word about it and, um, you know, sharing my thoughts on it and my analyses and, um, you know, the, the stuff I do in my spare time. So I, uh, and I think one of the most fulfilling things about that is that you, you know, you, you're, you basically, you're talking into the ether and, you know, people are listening. And um, I ended up kind of gathering a uh, a pretty hefty listenership and a, a faithful one and they you know they'd call me and I and I loved getting these calls from people where you know I'd get everything from one person called me saying that they had had cancer and the piece I had played reminded them of the the music that they would listen to during chemo when they were healing and wow. I I just that blew my mind and I was speechless and I'm like oh my goodness and so I I kind of was able to sharpen this thing I have where this is also kind of goes into just this is how I listen to music I guess and I never really know how to explain it but I I kind of, whenever I listen to a piece, there's always a, a moment that I hang on to. Um, it's, it's kind of something that's, it's, it's like a moment in the sonic fabric that viscerally, viscerally resonates for me and that hits a nerve deep within me. And, you know, they could be different in instrumentation and color, but they have a, a quality that I perk up to and instinctively latch onto immediately. And so instead of listening to whole pieces, I go back to those moments that I mentally catalog that for whatever reason, like I sort of just latch onto in my brain. And I even remember where they are like timestamp wise, like on Spotify or something. And so I always go back to those moments and I look for pieces with those moments. And so I ended up, you know, making a whole show basically out of pieces where I perceived these kind of very moving moments that I would rewind like 500 times <laughs> and, yeah. um, and people would, and I was so happy that, um, you know, people called in and were like, oh my goodness, like I, I've never heard this music before, or this is like just so moving. And so that would be, that was really humbling and fulfilling for me that mm -hmm. um, I was able to, you know, basically like that you, you can brighten someone's day or something and not even know it, or they call you and let you know it, you know, and, and I think that's, that's so powerful that, that that's a radio is a really um, something that people wouldn't necessarily think of as, you know, the, like the way of getting music out there and 
you know, in the, in this age of Spotify and, and YouTube and Apple music, you know, some people are saying with like radio being a dying art, but I'm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like it's, it's something that people, the people who love it really love it. And I yeah. think at, at KCR, that's definitely the case. And so I think it's one of these kind of, you know, tokens from way back when that just is something that's timeless and it's, it's a way to share music and spread you know, passion and, and your, you know, love of sound or certain sounds and it, it hits certain people. And I think that's, that's just such a powerful thing. Yeah, I agree. And you were talking about, you know, talking about Black Box and how you're trying to expand and feature music from underrepresented composers and sources like that. And also with your job on the radio, where do you hope to see new music, you know, post-COVID and post-pandemic, where do you hope to see new music go? What direction do you hope it goes in? Hmm, yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about this as uh, both in, in the black box context and, and the radio context. Um, I think that I'd like to see new, you know, new music and, and music of all kinds in these institutions. Um, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll start with saying that for example, you know, over the summer, I, I did this program on my radio show um, where I don't know if you know of the, the hashtag challenge accepted thing that was kind of going around social yeah. media with, yeah, with like women sharing and supporting each other and posting the black and white pictures and nominating others to do it. And I, I don't usually take part in like social media nominations, but that I, I was, I kind of like really was into that. And I'm like, wow, this is great. But like, you know, we were, you know, women are supporting each other in this way. And, you know, Barnard at, within Columbia, Barnard's an all women's college. So I, you know, I, I was very, um, I'm very, I had a really strong community of women in undergrad and I continue to, you know, post, post Barnard life. And, uh, you know, so I'm very passionate about about that with with female composers and and highlighting the the voices of these underrepresented women. And um, so on my radio show, I dedicated I kind of did like a hashtag challenge accepted series on my show where I featured the the voices of these female composers that I I was personally very inspired by. And I kind of did a, a just a series of these these people, and I, I talked about their pieces and. You know, I, I sort of just show, uh, you know, shined a light on on what they do, and uh, and I discovered so many amazing female composers from that too that I had never even heard of before. I mean, in just in my research, um, but I think I'd, I'd like to get to the point where you know we it doesn't have to be where like all female programs are a special thing, you know, so to speak. Like it's that you know, female composers are, or female choreographers, or, you know, like just, um, you know, female artists are just part of the program as the norm, you know, like it doesn't have to be that it's an all, you know, an all female uh, composer feature. And like, that's the only time we're doing that, you know, Um, it's, I think I'd like to see it where it doesn't have to be a quote unquote special event, and it doesn't like it's almost like you punch the ticket and then it doesn't happen again or it's like oh you know we did that so then Mm -hmm. we don't have to again um you know i think i i'd rather see it where the you know these these composers um you know are are basically part of of just the normal program you know these these composers that are are underrepresented and are you know deserve a, a platform for their voice and um 
I think through my radio show, I mean, that's, I, I feel like that's kind of the least I can do is, is uh, you know, highlight those people um, on my show in some way. And I think through Black Box, of course, we, we do that as well. And, um, you know, this, this program was um, just featured these composers that are, are such incredible, not only, you know, creators, but, but human beings. And, um, you know, the fact that we, we could give them the platform to have their voice be heard is, is a really, a really fulfilling thing and a very humbling thing. And I think in, in curating these programs, that's what we aim to do is that we make it part of our norm. We don't make it, you know, like it's, it's a feature and then we go on to the stuff that, you know, everyone hears all the time kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always like new sounds, new perspectives, new, new, th you know, new things to hear and, and see and uh, listen to um, and, and be open to listening to that. Yeah, that's great. I completely agree with everything you just said too. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, of course. Annie, I want to thank you so much for coming on and telling us a little bit about your life and, and delving into some of the things that you are so passionate about. It really is encouraging and, and amazing to just hear you talk about all of these things and all the projects that you are working on. Gives me a lot of hope that there are other people out there like me who are just passionate about everything and want to get after everything and fix all the world's problems. So let's get to <laughs> That's it. The goal. All right. Thank you so much, Annie. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to talk to us today. Thanks so much, Cassidy. This was so much fun.